Welcome to Health System CIO's podcast interview with Dirk Stanley, MD, CMIO at UConn Health. In part two, Stanley talks about the unique role CMIOs play in serving as a translator between two worlds, and how his upbringing provided the perfect training for it, why he decided to start publishing a blog, and the bumblebee moment that defined his career. We'll get to our interview in a moment, but first, a brief word from our sponsor. At CrowdStrike, we stop breaches, and since threat actors often show up with legitimate credentials, stopping them can be tough, especially if your Active Directory hygiene has been less than perfect. But you can secure Active Directory now and clean up later. Find out more about identity protection and AD hardening at CrowdStrike.com healthcare. Looking at the CMIO role, it's something that clearly has changed, has evolved, and, and will continue to. But just wanted to get some thoughts on the direction it's taken and where you think it will or should go in the future. You know, it's hard because when you discuss like clinical IT, so here are a couple of just general observations. When you're a doctor who works mm-hmm. in IT, the IT people look at you and they go, you're a doctor. You're not really an IT person. You don't really understand what we're talking about. And then the clinical people say, you're an IT person. You don't really understand the clinical stuff we're talking about. So the first thing is just sort of accepting that you're in this in-between world between the clinical and the IT. And really your job is partly, at least half of your job, is to be a translator between those two worlds, right? Like you need to Mm -hmm. be able to hear the IT people, what they're saying, and translate it into clinical speak. And then you need to be able to translate the clinical speak into IT language. So the irony is that for me is something that sort of came naturally. I grew up in a bilingual household. And my father was a military interpreter before he became a language teacher growing up. And he oh. married a, a woman from Germany. So I, I sort of grew up with this. It was just very matter of fact for me to always translate from one culture oh. into the other. When my wife and I go to Germany to visit my relatives, she doesn't speak German and they don't speak English. So I'm the translate, you know, so they say something at the dinner table and I translate it into English. And then my wife says something in English and I translate it back. (laughs) So I've kind of always been that translator, I guess. And I follow the same sort of standards and rigor that like professional translators do, at least as my father taught me growing up, like, how do you make sure that you're translating as effectively as possible? I also have the awareness that there are certain things that just can't be translated. You often have to have some judicious use to how provide that translation. So I think the first thing is providing that translation is very, very important. Another thing is engaging with the providers. And I don't think, I don't think it's just my role to, you know, worry about the doctors. I have to worry about the nurses and the pharmacists and the respiratory therapy. Pretty much everybody who works clinically is somebody, if any of those people raise their hand in a meeting and say they're concerned about point B, I listen to them and I meet with them and I say, like, tell me why you're concerned about point B. And often those concerns are very real and very valid. And then it requires sort of readjusting the blueprints before we initiate construction. So it's very, very important to engage with all those stakeholders. You know, I think my primary focus is obviously on the provider part of the engagement, but I would say in a very close second is everyone else, all the other clinical people, and even the patients. I have patients who you know, reach out to me about the MyChart patient portal, or mm. ultimately it's about connecting the clinical providers with the care that they want to deliver and making sure that that care is in alignment with what the patients expect too. So it's achieving alignment and agreements on a lot of these things. 
And then I guess the other part is also providing some architecture services because in that translation and in getting people into alignment so that we can actually build something, very important to have an architect who stands behind the workflow. Every one of the blueprints that I provide for you know everything from order sets to documentation to best practice alerts to even often schedules get impacted, charges, policies, all these things have to be in alignment to support the workflow that everybody is asking for. So when I develop those blueprints for that, you know, I stand behind them. This is how deliverable A is going to function in conjunction with deliverable B and deliverable C. I then present the whole picture of like, okay, for this workflow, here are the seven deliverables. Here's how they work together. Here's how we've achieved alignment on them. And some people would argue like, oh, you don't need to do that. Just we have one analyst who can just build deliverable B quickly. And then, you know, we'll figure out deliverable A and deliverable C later. But that's how you get disjointed workflows. So as a result of this work, we actually save a lot of time later down the road because the analysts aren't building and rebuilding. And you don't have like suddenly the department head is all upset about whatever order set just rolled out. And then you have to like go back and pull stuff out of production. It's a waste of time and resources. So doing that upfront preparation and having some rigor around it is very helpful at preventing downstream problems and unexpected outcomes. It's really interesting, especially what you said about being a translator, because for that to work, I would imagine that both sides have to have trust in you. They have to at least feel like both of their needs are being represented. So as you alluded to, that can get a little tricky. Yeah. Can you imagine being the translators when... uh, (laughs) Khrushchev and Kennedy were discussing the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? I can't mess this up, right? So I would say every every interpreter has a relationship with the people that they're interpreting. And, you know, the United Nations argues that, like, good interpreters actually need to spend time in both worlds to Mm. be able to translate effectively. So I spend my time going between the two worlds. But, you know, just as often, I read New England Journal of Medicine, other medical journals, just to try to keep up with everything that's on. Usually, though, I am certainly not the clinical expert at this. I depend on the frontline you know, department chiefs and other people to provide the clinical expertise. But I will often ask them, you know, can you show me the journal article that supports what you're saying or show me the data that supports what you're saying, you know, just to make sure that we're all in agreement. You know, we have good evidence to support what it is that we're building. When you look at your life before the CMIO role... And you think about like what made you uh, want to take this path or how did that experience help prepare you for it? Because obviously the translation piece is really big, but reflecting, uh, I, I guess. Can... In, in a <laughs> nutshell, my plan from point A to point B was nowhere, like there was no plan, but I'll share with you. So I actually started as an IT person. I was actually 15 years old when I got my first job in high school at a software company. I was actually a help desk person at one point. I was the one installing PCs and laptops and maintaining a network patch panel for a, you know, a Unix server in a small software company in Hartsdale, New York, where I grew up. It had about 100 employees, and I learned all about security and, and support. I was actually the person who had the angry salespeople who would, you know, Dirk, I'm in the middle of a million-dollar sales pitch. My PC isn't working. You've got to get it up and running. Oh like, I was frantically trying to get it up and running. So when I went to college, I continued in that sort of vein. I uh, interned briefly at IBM. I was a data network technician. I actually translate and help uh, troubleshoot there. At the time, IBM had a global data network. This is sort of before the internet. 
but I worked with other network operators around the globe. And because I actually grew up speaking German, I, I often interacted with the German network operators and also sometimes with the French. My, my French is not as good as my German, but so I, I grew up like realizing that there's information going around and that information is very important and it's transmitted from one place to another. And, you know, and we need to make sure that the information gets to the right place. After college, I continued doing IT computer work and consulting, but I got a little burnt out and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I don't know if you've ever experienced this at any point in your life or career, but I, I was basically living at home in my parents' basement, <laughs> mm-hmm. which, which they sort of reminded me that that's not really an acceptable arrangement. You actually have to go out and you know, get a job, and right. I, I, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I, had, uh, I have a friend whose mom was a nurse at the time. She was the patient representative at Westchester Medical Center in Valhalla, New York. And she called me up one day, like, you know, she said, Dirk, listen, before you get your mother on the phone, you know, your parents are not very happy with this current arrangement. (laughs) So why don't you come and volunteer here at the Westchester Medical Center? Maybe, you know, it'll get you out of the house. Maybe you'll meet some people. Who knows? So I went. Yeah. Of course, they looked at my resume at that point and they saw like, oh, so you you seem to be a computer person. So I, I started working at the... Uh, Westchester Medical Center um, in their IT department. I started volunteering there. And suddenly, as fate would have it, one of their quality data analysts in the quality department just resigned. It was not a well-paying job. Um, so they, they said, Dirk, listen, you know, you seem to be good with computers and math and data. Would you be interested in filling the role of medical data analyst? So I, I said, sure, whatever. So I got hired to do data analysis. And during meetings, I would often ask questions like, you know, hey, can I ask, what is vancomycin-resistant enterococcus? Like, I don't really understand. I know we're doing (laughs) studies about it, but like, what is, and what's with the central line? Why does the central line keep getting infected, but not the line on the left and line on the right? The doctors at that point were like, you know, you stay behind the spreadsheet, you you stay over there, we'll do the medicine over here, and you do the (laughs) computer stuff over there. I'm like, I don't even know what it is that I'm studying. Like, I need to, I want to understand this better. So I started volunteering at a local ambulance corps and I started like learning, you know, how do people get into the hospital? And then finally that led me to apply to medical school. So the irony is when I was applying for medical school, you know, they looked at my application. They were like, oh, you're a computer person. Why would we ever want a computer person in medicine? Like you're right. over here, oh my God. we're over here, right? So after two unsuccessful attempts at getting in, my father gave me some sage advice at that point. He said, look, Dirk, you have nothing to lose. Why don't you try applying overseas to medical school? So I'm actually one of the people who graduated from St. George University in Grenada. And I went down to this little island in the Caribbean to study. Like, and all of a sudden, I'm like, that's what ankylosing-resistant enterococcus is. Now I know what a central line is. So two yeah. years later, now I came back to New York, and I'm wearing my white coat and stethoscope, and I'm, you know, like energetic about my med school rotation. And I see people doing stuff with the computer, and I'm like, wait a second, you're <laughs> typing something into database A and then printing it out and then putting it into database B and then printing mm-hmm. it out and then putting it into database C, and you have no identifiers. You're creating duplicate records. You can't do that. That's a no-no. And now they said, no, 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 no. You do medicine. We do computers. You don't. You don't understand. White coat and stethoscope, medicine. You belong in this box, and we do the computers. We're in this box. So I'm like, wow, two years later, I'm suddenly like, yeah, they don't want me there either, right? So anyway, after residency, I did my uh, residency in internal medicine. 
and kept coming up over and over again that you know people would have problems and and I knew how to address those problems. So uh, a year after I graduated from my residency at Albany Medical Center, I was at uh, Rhode Island Hospital and applying for jobs. And I applied for a job at Cooley Dickinson Hospital, my former employer. Informatics wasn't even in my vocabulary at that point. But while I was applying for a hospitalist job, they looked at my resume and they were like, you've done data analysis and computer consulting and you've done all this. You have this whole plethora of like IT background. Hey, have you heard about meaningful use? Oh, We're man. an electronic medical record. And, you know, we would <laughs> like to speak to you about being a CMIO and, and getting into clinical informatics. And of course, oh, I went home wow. and Googled quickly. And, you know, this was around 2007. There wasn't a lot of information on the internet. But it said, like, clinical informatics is a discipline where you can combine both clinical care and data management in this, like, harmonious discipline called clinical informatics. And I swear it was like the clouds opened up and the birds started chirping for me. And suddenly I'm like, oh, my God, I finally found a place where I fit, right? And right. that's how yeah. I ended up. Wow. That's so interesting. I mean, crazy story, to right? go from, from one to the other. Yeah. And you can see that the coming together of the two worlds. It finally made sense. I didn't know how to answer when I was applying to medical school. You know, why would we want a computer person in medicine? I didn't have a good answer. At the yeah. Now I have a much better answer. Yeah. It seems like it was persistence on your part, but then also you throw in a little timing. That doesn't hurt, right? With meaningful it, use. It logically fell into place in the moment in history where I was finally like, you know, you ever <laughs> see the, um, there's a video for uh, Blind Melon, No Rain. Do you know that song? <gasps> yeah. The, the, the bumblebee. Little, the little bee girl <laughs> dancing. And, but finally she opens up the gates and all these people are wearing bee outfits. That's what it was like for me. <laughs> Oh, that's Only perfect. Only in a world full of <laughs> bee outfits, yeah. Awesome. That's great. And the last thing I wanted to talk about was you have your blog. What made you want to do that and decide to be really transparent with this blog? And what do you like about it? So, you know, I started doing that like kind of early in my journey. And I thought like when you're a physician and you're put into a leadership role, there's not a great training pathway, for that, right? There, mm. there are classes that you can take for being a physician leader. But they require time and effort and resources. I've taken, in full transparency, I've, I've taken some of those classes, and I've learned so much from doing that. But there were a lot of lessons where I learned something along the journey where I thought, this is helpful. If someone else, if I could prevent one other person from making the same mistake or from learning this lesson the hard way, that would be helpful, right? So I started... I just started blogging. I figured, all right, for all those people wearing the bee costume, like, you know, I need to make a place where what are the lessons as a, as a bumblebee that you need to share with each other? And a lot of it is about applying the rigors of engineering and process engineering. I seem to get along very well with project managers and lean and Six Sigma people and also industrial engineers. We all kind of speak the same language, but, you know, all those people had their own training path. But there's not really a great training pathway for physician leaders. So I wanted to take the mystery out of how do you build a workflow? Like, how do you know that the workflow is complete? How do you know you've identified all the deliverables? How do you know you've identified all the stakeholders? How do you know it's safe and properly budgeted for? And how do you know that it's, it would pass regulatory muster? These questions are not mysterious. Like once you actually start to understand how change management works, it's, it's very logical, actually. It's and I wanted to take the mystery out of that for other people. Yeah. So that's when I started blogging. It doesn't require any sort of complex rocket science. It's not mysterious. It's not taboo. It's just, it's sort of fundamental change management written in a way that hopefully other clinical people can understand and appreciate. 
Yeah, it's a really interesting way of looking at it. And like you said, you know, there, there never seems to be time to, to stop the machine, especially in the last year and a half. It's amazing if you think about it. Healthcare has been open for business 24-7 for the last 250 yeah. years. Like there's never been a time where it can close down for, you know, like Starbucks, when they want to retool <laughs> their, you know, HR policy, they close. We don't have that opportunity. No, it's uh, become really evident. But I think if we don't make some effort to talk about the infrastructure operating, like, you know, all these like very fundamental principles, then people will often learn about them. But then they're learning like after, you know, something went wrong or, you know, they raised their hand and had like an embarrassing response to their question or whatever. And that's not, that's not the way it should happen. Like we should be giving people a good solid foundation of what is healthcare, who are the people inside it, what do those people do? What do we call those people? There's so much fundamental stuff that can be you know, developed and improved. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And it was great to, to, uh, to hear from you, to hear about what you guys are doing. And you know, I feel like I got to know you better. So thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. And you know, I, I just want to say thank you uh, on behalf of myself and every other clinical informatics person. What you and Anthony are always doing is really um, I learned so much by going to your site, reading about what other people are doing. It provides me tremendous insight and you are not afraid of looking at the big pictures, but also the little pictures. And you, you know, you really have a nice mix of information and thank you for doing it. Thank you for listening to this podcast from healthsystemcio.com. To hear other podcasts, visit our website or subscribe to our account in iTunes at healthsystemcio.com backslash podcast.